Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene podcast. And, uh, well, it's here, the Riyadh uh, Season World Masters of Snooker. Um, been a lot of talk about this event, uh, a lot of arguments and, and discussion, but it's here. It starts on Monday. And, uh, well, we finally got some details. They're very late, it's got to be said, in, in sort of finding out the basics. But um, the prize money is pretty eye-watering, 250000 to the winner. Remember, it's only a three-day tournament. The most intriguing thing is that it's been announced just literally on Saturday, so two days before the tournament began, begins, that there are two extra players in it. Uh, Ding Junhui and John Higgins, 9 and 10 on the world rankings. The field's been expanded. No explanation as to why. <laughs> no reason given at all. It's just uh, with two more players. So the whole narrative that we pushed during the Players' Championship, you know, the race to Riyadh, the top eight, Ali Carter sweating on the final, uh, none of that ultimately applied because it was turned out it was for the top ten. Uh, my theory is, and, and I think it, in a way it's a good thing, um, the sessions have all sold out, which is brilliant. And it may just be, well, they're thinking, well, we can sell more tickets if we've got more matches, so let's get two more players in. It's an invitation event. They can do what they like, really. Um, and so far they have done. <laughs> and John, John and, and Ding, you can pretty much guarantee one of them will win it. Probably Higgins. Higgins will probably win it, make the, the golden maximum, and, and come home <laughs> with, with 650 grand that in an event he wasn't in until two days before because that's the other thing when the uh, the, the golden ball of course there's been a lot of discussion about that for the 167 um, and the point I made when it was announced I said it's a great publicity stunt this but that given it 20 points he's neither here nor there it's got to be a big money prize that, that, that then is jeopardy well my word there's some jeopardy it's half a million dollars which works out around about £395,000 for potting it's obviously not for potting one ball. You've got to pot the <laughs> you've got to pot the thirty six before that, the fifteen reds, fifteen blacks, and the colours. But if you do that, if you then pot and you get nothing for that, by the way, but if you then pot the golden ball as well, you get that incredible windfall. It's the first player to do it. So say John Higgins did it in the first match against the wild card. If Ronnie O'Sullivan did it later, he wouldn't get a penny. <laughs> so it's pretty cutthroat in that respect. But my word, it's injected uh, some excitement into the event. And um, you talk about a pot of gold. I mean, right there. Um, is literally that. We've got details about how the golden ball is going to work. It's going to be placed. There was a lot of discussion again about this. Was it on the blue spot? Where's it going to go? The frame begins. It's in the middle of the bulk cushion. Um, if it moves at any point, it stays where it moves. If it's knocked in, it's a foul um, equal to the if it was four points or equal to the value of the ball on. So if you're on the black, it's seven. Um, but given such time as someone can't make a 147, so someone, say someone pots a red and a pink, it's then taken off the table. 
Now, this is the way referees think, OK? I was talking to a referee about this, and he said, here's a scenario for you, OK? So the frame starts, uh, the, the, the golden ball just moves off the ball cushion a little bit. Someone plays a sort of classic shot-to-nothing long red, you know, pots of long red, cue ball in bulk. Snooker's behind the golden ball, OK? Therefore, they can't make a one four seven. So the referee then picks up the golden ball, and the, their opponent's no longer snookered. That's a small thing, but but I kind of hope it happens at the same time. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, the, the fact that it, the, it starts on the ball cushion. Now, obviously, if it doesn't move, making the maximum is going to be difficult. Clearly, that the shot from black to the golden ball, and then potting the golden ball along the ball cushion for half a million dollars, it could be very difficult. For some reason, it's, it's, it seems harder to pop along the cushion on the bulk cushion than the top cushion. We don't know how big the pockets are going to be yet, of course. That might help. Um, the, the option is there to try and move it if it is nailed to the bulk cushion um, during the maximum. But when do you do that? You can only really do it on a bulk colour. And, of course, the problem with that is you might sacrifice position on the next colour. But, you know, we're, we're going to, I'm sure, see a few attempts. And it is going to inject a lot of interest and people who... who Claim they're not going to be watching, will be watching, very much like the shootout, will hear loud, performative, you know, de- declarations. I'm not watching this. You will be. <laughs> you will be. If you hear someone's on a maximum, you'll be watching. And by the way, it's on Eurosport and DAZN. That was only announced on Saturday as well. It, that's uh, around the world. Um, it was in the Eurosport schedules for about a week, but uh, it was only announced at the last minute. That that's where you can watch it. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be fascinating. Um and if anyone does make that maximum, what a windfall. Uh, obviously, the controversy rages on about the fact the event even exists. But I would point you to uh, David Caulfield. He writes uh, Snooker HQ, a website. And uh, he, write, he writes on that pretty much every day. And he's got a full-time job. So we must um, point you to that website. Well worth checking out and reading. And David's written a piece uh, today sort of laying out the arguments for and against and a very balanced stuff. I thought it was worth reading because it, it's not some sort of raging polemic. It's very measured. And I think it'd be fair to say he sort of comes down on a pragmatic view that it's actually better the tournament's on than not on. But anyway, whatever your views on it, it's worth reading that. Um, but the fact is, the event's here. It's happening. Uh, it's on. And it's going to be very interesting to see what happens and how it all pans out. Mark Williams and Ali Carter, of course, they went there thinking they'd be playing these two wild cards. So let's be honest, they're pretty much 95% likely to beat. Uh, turns out they're now playing either the two wild cards or Ding Jin Wheel John Higgins. So they're no longer, because the quarterfinal prize is 50,000, they're no longer basically guaranteed 50, they're guaranteed 25,000. <laughs> I'd love to have been a fly on the wall on that phone call. I'm not asking for sympathy, they're still you know, gonna, gonna get 25 grand, uh, in a, in an event that, you know, is new, but even so, <laughs> I wonder how they felt when Ding and Higgins were called up, because it's not just two new players, it's two world-class players, clearly. And my theory is, and, and this will date very quickly, I'm sure, but my theory is John Higgins, you're gonna win it. Um, Ding might as well, but I don't know, I just get the feeling. I could, I could see Higgins winning it, making the maximum, and, uh, yeah, and coming home to wish you're pretty happy, I would imagine. Let's hear from the listening public. Paul Regan has written, I enjoyed your contribution to ITB's coverage of the players. Ch-. By the way, I had a, I had a review, uh, not, not, a, not a glowing one on Apple Podcasts. Uh, three stars, thank you very much. Uh, the, the, but the, the, the reason they were sort of not, not entirely happy was they said I talk too quick because, because not everyone, I understand this, not everybody 
has English as, as their first language. But uh, you can only really talk the speed you talk, I'm afraid. Um, if I slowed it down, imagine how long it would be. So uh, hopefully you can keep up um, with what's being said. But uh, I, I, I'm mindful of that. And uh, thank you for the review, even though it was not, not exactly glowing. Anyway, Paul says, I enjoyed your contribution to ITV's coverage of the Players' Championship. Thanks, as always, for the informed narrative. It was nice to see Zhang Ander make another good run. There's a calm, fuss-free style to his play. And I think his ability to keep emotions in check brings a real dignity to his game, perhaps helped by his humble temperament. I noticed that he plays a very simple game technically. This is not necessarily a bad thing. Favouring a plain ball shot where possible does reduce risk of runaway positional shots. And Zhang doesn't struggle to win with one-visit frames. Some pundits went further, though. They questioned his ability to control the cue ball with more elaborate stun and screw shots, particularly those that require real power, and suggested this was holding him back. I wonder if you think this is the case, or is he simply insensibly, tactically risk-averse? His poker face makes it harder to judge whether it's pressure getting to him at times or the boundaries of ability. Thank you, Paul. Well, he's doing well, isn't he? I mean, that's the, that's the thing. Um, he, he does play, yeah, that very solid risk-averse, I suppose. That, that, that's maybe a fair comment, but... You know, I suppose there are points in a frame where you take risks, and most of the time, 90% of the time, you don't. You know, you're, you're actually doing the opposite. And he plays that very kind of, well, I suppose relentless way, um, where he doesn't sort of, he doesn't have much power, I think that's fair to say, but he makes the most of what he does have. And you can't really question what he's done. I mean, he's, you know, he's come from journeyman to top player in the space of a few months. Um, be interested to see if he himself feels that he needs to develop further to actually either stay where he is or improve even more, push on top eight and all the rest of it. But I think you have to say what he's, <laughs> what he's doing so far. And he is making big breaks. Um, maybe he doesn't make them quite the same as other people, but he makes them. So, I, I don't, I, you know, you can't... I don't think there's been criticism of him. It's just people that ask their opinions about how he plays and that's maybe the uh, the answer people have given. Uh now, Lucas from Germany is also written in about the Players' Championship. He says, this is the first time I've written you an email. I must confess, I only found your podcast about two weeks ago. I like snooker and I like podcasts. But for some reason, it never occurred to me to search the internet for snooker podcast. Better late than never, I guess. I watched the Players' Championship in Telford on Eurosport last week. I noticed that many people in the audience kept looking upwards. Of course, I've seen this at several tournaments. And I've realised there are monitors where the crowd can watch the game and slow motions. But what I noticed in Telford was that the audience had to twist their necks quite a bit. I was afraid that someone would break their neck. Do the monitors hang that high in the arena? And are there such monitors above the table at every ranking tournament? Sorry if you've answered a question like that before on the podcast or on the TV. I don't watch Eurosport with British commentators. Thank you and keep up the good work. Thank you, Lucas. Um, yeah, the monitors, uh, there are monitors above the tables. I think it sort of depends on the, the configuration of the venue, you know, how high up they are. Some are higher than others. Um, because some audiences that go back further, so they need to be high up if you're sat near the back to see them. Um, I di I'll be honest, I didn't notice they were particularly high in Telford, but clearly you did, so that's fair enough. Now, Mark in Darlington. Just to say thanks for your brilliant podcast. Your informal style and dry humour always makes me laugh when I'm in the car after work. I think he sent this to the wrong person. But anyway, just a couple of things. Thank you, Mark. He says, uh, any idea what happens to the cloth after a big event like the World Championship? I wondered if it could be cut up and sold in a presentation case with a certificate of authenticity or even signed by the finalists as a way to generate income for the next event or is it reused or sold to clubs in the area? Imagine playing on the cloth used in a world final 
at your local working men's club or snooker hall. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it frequently is kind of bought by a player. Sometimes one of the commentators, I've done commentators buy cloths um, to put on their table at home. So it's usually, it's not cut up, but it's usually, someone usually sort of takes it with them or has it sent to them. Um, how it's, I mean, it's, it, it doesn't kind of need to be authenticated, I suppose, if it's just going on a, on a table, a table in a club, but... Um, that's that's the answer. It's quite a dull answer, but that's the answer. Usually, somebody has it. Uh, Mark continues. Did you or any well? Did you or anyone else hear John Virgo say he hasn't seen much of Gary Wilson play before uh, during his commentary at the Welsh Open? I know he's been criticised in the past for not having a good working knowledge of recent events or tournaments, which don't feature on the BBC. But Gary Wilson, this makes me think he doesn't watch much snooker at all. I think John has a great talent for commentary and is adept at bringing the excitement and tension on the table to the viewers through his emotive language and antics. But his references about the speed of modern cloths or the fact there's little or no nap these days are becoming a little tiresome to me anyway. He throws in names like Cliff Thorburn and Alex Higgins like they were playing last week. And although I appreciate that snooker fans in general are a pretty nostalgic breed, I think his banter could do with an update. Having said that, I'm glad the BBC kept him on. Anyway, thanks again for your highly entertaining content. Well, thank you, Mark. You kind of said it yourself there. You're glad the BBC kept him on. I mean, I didn't hear John at the, at the Welsh because I've commentated myself, so I don't know what was said or what wasn't said. Um, but he provides great continuity, actually, with that coverage. I mean, he I think he started commentating at the 85 World Championship. Um, it was around then. So it's basically 40 years he's been in that team. He started as what they called then a summariser, which was the player who sort of didn't talk that much, actually, because they weren't allowed to. And I, I know that John kind of over the years did his best to sort of change that. He was, uh, for quite a while, he was one of the only players you'd actually see in the studio. He was always with David Vine, the final session in the World Final. John Virgo would be in the studio giving his analysis. Eventually, he sort of became a lead commentator, which is what he is now. He's uh, quite a distinct voice in the sport. Um, and personally, and it's only my personal opinion, I enjoy listening to him. I think he does build the drama. And I, I like the fact that he has that continuity going back decades, basically. You know, um, and I think when you hear him talk about the modern game, you you, you can clearly hear the uh, the enjoyment he takes from it. So that's my opinion, but um, others will have their own, of course, as they do with all commentators. Uh, now, Richard wrote in last week um, about ITVX, and he's written back. He says, in hindsight, I realised my previous email about ITVX was rather negative. More negative than I had intended, and in your reply you brought up some points that I'd never considered. I have to say, Richard, I didn't think it was negative. Um, you know, you made your points, I answered them, we move on. But we moved on because you've written back. He said, in the Republic of Ireland, ITV4 is carried on Virgin Media's digital cable network, but that only covers some of the population. The other TV providers do not officially offer any ITV channels, including Sky, which is the most popular multi-channel service. However... Reception of the free UK channels is available informally on satellite throughout Ireland. This is because the satellite beam has to be big enough to cover the whole of the UK, including Northern Ireland, and so overspill coverage in the Republic of Ireland is unavoidable. So people who want to watch free UK TV channels could do so using a dedicated free-to-air receiver, a free sat receiver imported from the UK, or by manually tuning a sky receiver, although that is not as user-friendly. Watching overspill satellite reception is totally legal. Whilst overspill satellite reception is inevitable, the UK broadcasters can easily block their internet services to users outside the UK. This means that ITVX, BBC iPlayer, etc. are blocked in the Republic of Ireland. 
Many people in Ireland, however, use VPNs to get around this blocking to watch UK streaming services. This might be technically illegal, I'm not sure. Paying subscribers to ITV Hub, the old name for ITVX, used to be able to watch it in Ireland and throughout the European Union under EU law. Obviously, that no longer applies since 2020. Well, it's very, thank you, Richard. That's very detailed. And cheers Brexit at the end there, by the way, um, for, for wrecking that. But, um, yeah, so that's the answer. People have said you, people have said you can't watch ITV4 in Ireland, but we've had correspondence from people who are. That answers it. The phrase there, I never expected to use, overspill satellite reception, um, has explained it. So thank you for that. And it seems ITVX you can't get uh, anymore, uh, which is a shame, obviously. Uh, let's go back to Saudi Arabia. Um, with the other tournament there. So Benjamin has written, just a question around the Saudi Arabia snooker masters to be staged over the summer. Is it a random one to eight flat draw? If so, with the amount of money that's up for grabs, it would heavily influence the rankings based on luck. If you're outside the top 64 and you manage to accidentally draw somebody close closer to your own ranking, this could already secure your season. On the other hand, if you're just on the tour and have the misfortune of drawing Ronnie, Judd or Selby in Riyadh, your season seems finished before it even got started. Even a couple of wins in a row in a home nation's event, however admirable, would simply not be significant enough to turn the tide. It feels unbalanced to have one season, one season or even career defined by the luck of the draw in one event. Other than the tiered qualifying system like the World Championship and UK Championship, I can't see any real way of solving the issue. What's your take on this? Um, my take, Benjamin, is I don't know the answer if it's a, if it's the flat one to eight. Um, I suspect personally, and this is only just um, my sort of uh, opinion or, or, or suspicion, I suspect that it probably will more likely be tiered um, like the World and UK Championship, purely so that they can guarantee the top 16, or certainly the the best-known players, are going to be there. Because it's going to be a big-money event. We don't have the, the prize-money breakdown yet, but it's going to be not far off the World Championship, as, you, as you've already pointed out. Um, so why wouldn't it be the same format as the World and UK Championship, the other two biggest ranking events. Um, I don't know that. That's just my sort of, um, you know, that, that's what I think might happen. But we'll find out. You're right what you say. I mean, the, but look at the draw. But that, that applies in every event, really. Something like the International Championship is a big money event. If you draw a top player in round one, you know, you, you, it's unlucky, isn't it? Um, but someone's got to play them. But we'll monitor that. And I'm sure uh, we'll get the uh, we'll get the full sort of details Hopefully a bit quicker than we did on <laughs> for the invitation event two days before. Not not great. Uh, now last week uh, there was talk of the World Snooker Tour YouTube channel. Someone wrote in complaining about the comments and, and suggesting that it should be moderated. And uh, <coughs> David Friedel has written. Now there, I should say there are two David Friedels, and the other one um, I will answer. You did write to me, and I'll answer what you what you wrote in about. But this one, um, well, he's written this. He says writing in from across the pond with a few thoughts about the game's appeal outside the UK. For years now, I've enjoyed all of my snooker after the fact on YouTube. This vantage point reveals some non-obvious points that your live match viewers might find interesting. It's not hard to find snooker channels featuring edited match highlights or curated clips of funny snooker moments or best escapes. In some cases, the channel's host appears in a small thumbnail picture-in-picture screen in the top or bottom corner, often providing analysis and commentary. It's interesting to note the variety of nationalities and languages to be found among these YouTube commentators. Some speak English with heavy accents, Central European, East Asian, while others speak their native tongues. I've heard Arabic, Russian, Chinese, Thai, Vietnamese, French and German. I even found one channel that featured a man speaking Chinese, while the thumbnail camera showed a young Chinese woman touching up her hair and makeup. 
I believe there's a money point lurking here regarding the wide breadth of the sport's appeal. Although some of the folks who take the time to edit this content and add their narration may simply be fans who expect nothing in return, presumably most are hoping to garner enough subscribers to generate income. I wonder if the folks at World Snooker Tour or possibly advertisers are mining this data for insights on the sport's popularity in different countries or and regions. I suspect just jumping in there, I suspect that World Snooker might more, more likely be looking at copyright infringements um, because in, in many cases people making these videos have absolutely no rights to the footage at all. But anyway, that's maybe a separate issue. Uh, David continues, Like you, I stopped reading the YouTube comments long ago, but not before noticing the variety of languages and alphabets to be found there. Yet more data to be crunched, it would seem. Of course, it would be a terrible idea to have your listeners start sending in examples of idiotic YouTube comments, but perhaps you'll permit me to name one. A while back, I watched a clip that featured a pair of Thai commentators. Within the first few minutes, it was clear neither of them adhered to the less is more school of sports commentating. The banter was almost incessant. And sure enough, someone took the trouble to post a comment in English, of course. Would you just shut up already? It really does make one wonder. Thanks as always for your time and talent. I look forward to every episode. Well, thank you, David. And uh, yeah, I mean, the whole YouTube thing is interesting because we've all been on there looking at old stuff. And I think I've made this point before. I think there is a difference between preserving the kind of uh, heritage of the game, really, by putting old clips up that people have taped at the time, footage that would be lost without these people putting it up. So I'm talking about stuff from 30, 40 years ago and stuff from three days ago where there are clear copyright issues. Um, people even live stream. I know that Will Snook have taken action recently to stop that because these people do not own the rights to the footage and broadcasters who pay money to show um, snooker, quite rightly, d don't want people randomly just streaming it for free on the internet. Um, so, but anyway, uh, thank you for that. And uh, we'll move on to Otto uh, in Finland. He says, I always wondered how the commentators are able to deduce the amount of points, pots needed for a player to win the frame, i.e. leave the opponent needing snookers. Then I stumbled on the following rule of thumb on an internet forum somewhere. Learning this has paradoxically increased my enjoyment of watching and playing the game. So he says you can calculate the amount of points that a player needs by subtracting their lead from the amount of points left on the table and dividing the difference by two. Conversely, if the player is behind, you must first add the opponent's lead to the amount of points on the table. Okay, so he says while this will give you the amount in absolute points, deducing the required colour after the reds have been potted can still be tricky. And judging by the number of times even the commentators get this wrong, there isn't any mental shortcut cut for deducing this. I thought I would write in to share this eureka moment of mine while realising that a portion of your viewership might consider it common knowledge. I'm sure that there are more r recent converts like myself that will appreciate this bit of knowledge. Thank you for the quality and regularity of this content. Thank you, Otto. Um, let's just read that again. He said, you can calculate the amount of points that a player needs by subtracting their lead from the amount of points left on the table and dividing the difference by two. Conversely, if the player's behind, you must first add the opponent's lead to the amount of points on the table. I have to say, I've read that three, twice now, and I don't really understand it. But anyway, clearly you do, and <laughs> it's good that, uh, that it's helped you follow, uh, follow the action. Uh, Steve Graves. Firstly, thanks a lot for keeping the podcast up and running for so long. It's kept me going through many a bus journey to work. Apologies if this has been addressed before, but it strikes me that snooker is one of the few sports I can think of where the players don't warm up on the actual playing surface before the action begins. In most individual team sports, the players will run through a few routines in the arena. I appreciate snooker events have a practice table or two, 
But as we so often hear players talking about how different cloths and pocket tightness, etc. can affect the game, you might imagine they benefit from a bit of time on the table they'll actually be playing on. Similarly, the atmosphere in the venue is often seen as a factor which affects play on the table, so perhaps a few pressure-free shots taken in that environment would help relax players before the real stuff gets underway. It feels odd that players are introduced into the arena, do their walk-ins and start off cold, as it were, with their first shot being a meaningful one. In many ways, it makes one of our amazing professional stars firing in a long red with their first shot even more impressive. Of course, the likes of tennis or football are very different to snooker, but even in darts, there are some practice throws in the arena. Has anyone ever thought of introducing something like this in snooker? The only real objection I can think of would be that the cloth would be very slightly marked, but, that, but that's the case very quickly once players begun anyway. So in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't feel like a big deal. appreciate this isn't the most pressing issue facing the game, but for me, it's definitely one of those things where snooker has taken a different path to other sports. <clears throat> Thank you, Steve. Well, I can, all, I can picture Sean Murphy nodding away there in the background because, of course, this was, this was something that he has talked about. And it, it does happen, actually. It happens, though, not when play starts, um, which is what you're saying, but there are tournaments. The Masters is the most obvious example. It can't be done in every event because the play is often, for example, at the home nation's continuous. But an event like the Masters, the players are allowed to go out and have a warm-up on the table. Some do, some don't. I have to say, I mean, Ronnie O'Sullivan doesn't do it, and he won the Masters. So it's not necessarily going to make any difference, really, except that you do get a chance to see how the cloth is running, as you say, how the table's playing, the pockets, the cushions, etc. Um, now, should players do that at the start of a match? In tennis, they do it because they have to physically warm up, um, warm up their bodies, and, and, and so they have, I think, five minutes each to do that. I have to tell you that I can't think of a single broadcaster that wants to broadcast that. They don't. When the match starts, Rob Walker or whoever it is brings the players out. There's great ovation. That's when you want to start the match. You don't then want ten minutes with basically nothing happening. So that's the issue, and it's kind of it's really the central issue of professional snooker. It's it's the argument between what players want and what's best for them, and what broadcasters want and what's best for them. And in most most sort of um, scenarios, a, a, an accommodation is found between the two. I don't think any broadcaster wants 10 minutes of players warming up and nothing happening. Um, but they could do that before they're introduced and therefore they do still have a chance to play on the table. It doesn't happen in every tournament, uh, but that's the kind of um, accommodation that's been, that's been reached. Now there'll be people out there saying, well, this is all very well, but we don't tune in for this. What we tune in for is banal meetings with snooker players. A feature so popular, it was stolen by another podcast. <laughs> yes, it was. And uh, if, if, you, if you're just tuning in, new listeners, this is essentially a feature where listeners have met a snooker player, but it, nothing really has happened. Nothing of any value has happened. Uh, maybe a nod, maybe just a short hello, and that's it. So they're banal meetings with snooker players. They're slight meetings. We had a few of these this week. Matt Pickles. He said, I bumped into Andrew Higginson at Chester Races a couple of years ago. I said, you're Andrew Higginson. He said, yep, I'd had a few. Well, at least he didn't deny it, I suppose, Matt. Uh, this is exactly what we want. That's a sort of textbook banal meeting with a snooker player. Nothing really happens. Um, uh, literally, I think. I mean, just a, just a very short exchange. Uh, but uh, we move on here. Now, this is from Ben. <coughs> ben Robertson, no relation to Neil. He said, um, I'm just writing in to say, I'd love to contribute to your excellent banal meetings with snooker players segment. Back in 2016, I just moved to London from Sydney on a two-year working holiday visa. Just as I was finding my feet in a new city, I was struck down with a horrendous bout of food poisoning. 
As I was gingerly recovering in bed, I found myself flicking through the channels on television and stumbled across the World Snooker Championship that were being broadcast on the BBC. After only a few hours of watching, I was hooked and have been an avid fan ever since. There you are, you see, food poisoning gets a bad name, but here we are. Uh, ben discovered the great game through horrible illness. Anyway, that all, he continues. That all aside, a few weeks later, I was out sightseeing and found myself in the Science Museum in London. As I was strolling along and enjoying the various exhibits, I recognised a gentleman walking in the opposite direction. I knew straight away it was none other than Marco Fu. He was holding a small child in his arms that I assumed was his son. We made eye contact and I rather cringingly said to him, Marco Fu, he was gracious enough to stop and have a chat to me, where I revealed I was a new fan of the sport and had enjoyed watching him play in the recently concluded World Championship. I think he got to the semis that year, did he, Marco? I can't remember, anyway. Uh, that's me adding that in. He said, for some reason I mentioned I was Australian and we discussed Neil Robertson and how much we both rated him as a competitor. Anyhow, I now live in Melbourne, Australia, and I long for a World Snooker Tour event to be played here. I've since gotten many of my friends into the beautiful game that is snooker, and we all look forward to staying up till the wee hours every April, watching the World Championship. Many thanks for all you do for the sport, and please keep up the excellent podcast. Well, thank you, Ben. And, oh, well, Marco, you know, there's a few better people, really, to bump into in the Science Museum, I would suggest, because he's a, he is a gentleman. Now, Josh uh, has written in as well here. Josh Nutbrown, <coughs> that's his name. Uh, <coughs> he says, I'm not entirely sure if this class is a banal meeting per se, but I'll let you be the judge of that. Uh, in July last year, my local snooker club, Halifax Snooker Club, was celebrating its 40th anniversary. Because of this, a special party was thrown for its members on the Saturday. And for just one evening, the theme was Everything 1983. Now, I think I might have read this out last week, because <laughs> it rings a bell. Now, whether I just read it, uh, when was this sent in? Let me just, just bear with me a second. 1st of March... Uh, no, I can't have done because there wasn't an episode then. Uh, I'll, I'll start reading it again, Josh, because I've slightly ruined it, OK? And some people say they're just all thrown together. But anyway, it says, I'm not entirely sure if this class is a banal meeting per se, but I'll let you be the judge of that. In July last year, my local snooker club, Halifax Snooker Club, was celebrating its 40th anniversary. Because of this, a special party was thrown for its members on the Saturday. And for just one evening, the theme was Everything 1983. The bar prizes were changed to the prices they were when originally the club opened. For example, a pint of John Smith's cost just 44p, a gin and tonic a mere 67p. We were also, this sounds brilliant by the way, he says we were also encouraged to wear 80s attire. As you can imagine, there were quite a few members dressed as Dennis Taylor, various versions of Madonna, a lot of questionable wigs, shoulder pads, and of course, could it possibly be the 80s without fluorescent lycra? There was also a special guest in attendance who had just arrived to a scene of absolute drunken chaos with his family a young Stan Moody. The party had started at 2pm and it was now 7 o'clock. Fair to say the bar was already nearly dry. At those prices, I'm not surprised, uh, Josh. Anyway, he says, uh, there had been rumours that Stan may make an appearance, but personally I thought it was nonsense as he now practised near Birmingham at Landywood Snooker Club and near 120 miles away. The idea he would travel all the way for this novel anniversary seemed far-fetched, but sure enough, the prodigal son had returned. By this point, a man in bright orange leg warmers who for some reason had a water pistol had taken it upon himself to go round the bar squirting anyone and everyone who said with said water pistol, and perhaps unwittingly took aim at Stan's dad. Fair to, fair to say Stan's father wasn't too impressed, probably due to the fact he'd just driven to Birmingham and back again, and took Stan and the family to the pool room for some shelter and a bit of quiet. I eventually mustered the courage to go in there and say hello. Stan was quiet but seemed confident for his age. He looked me at me straight in the eye when I said that the whole of Halifax were proud of him, and simply smiled and said thanks. A very polite young man, I asked him what match he was he had next. I think he said something like a Chinese qualifier. 
but thinking about it, I can't remember what tournament that may have been in reference to. Uh, well, we can work this out. Uh, let's just go back to when it was. Well, it could have been any of the three Chinese events, I suppose, couldn't it? July last year, uh, that would be maybe the Wuhan. Uh, a bit early for that. Anyway, um, it doesn't matter. Uh, we'll, con- we'll conclude your uh, email, Josh. Uh, anyway, a lovely young man. Did you know, fun fact, he has a twin brother. Not a joke about him look like, looking like a mini shit Sean Murphy. He has an actual non-identical twin brother. <clears throat> well, you built that up quite a bit, but it was in the end quite banal because you literally went in, had a brief chat, and came back out again. So it certainly qualifies. Um, and uh, it's it, it, not whole nineteen eighty three. I mean, of course, it's a year that's uh, special to the podcast because that is the year of the mysterious table at the Crucible that's still, you know. And, and I just watched a thing on Netflix called The Octopus Murders about this d- uh, deep state American conspiracy. Well, to be honest, it, you know, this this table business makes that look like a lot of fuss about nothing because still. The authorities are suppressing <laughs> any investigation into why there was a table in the Bill Werbenek-David Taylor match, a small table between the actual snooker table and the audience in the front row. Nobody's talking about this. You know, people are looking the other way, but I'm determined to get to the bottom of it. And, you know, people mocked Woodward and Bernstein back in the 70s. But uh, anyway, uh, so thank you for that. Uh, now, that's the end of the, that, that segment uh, if we can call it that. But we, what we do have here is Henry Cutting. He said in the podcast a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned Mark King's name, and it got me thinking of Stephen Lee. I believe his ban is up at some point this year and wondered whether you think he would be welcomed by the fellow players if he tried to come back on the tour, or whether you think the players would be against it, against it. Although what he did was obviously wrong, I believe he's done his time and shouldn't get grief if he wanted to give it another go. I, for one, would love to see him back as he was one of the most naturally gifted players I've ever seen. Have you heard any rumours that he might try and give it a go? And if he did, how do you think he would fare? And what ranking could he get to? Uh, well, Henry, people have asked this over the years, but the issue is he still owes money in fines and legal costs that he hasn't paid. So unless he, and it's tens of thousands of pounds that I'm imagining he didn't want to pay before he's allowed back on tour. So, <clears throat> you know, unless they let, let him back on and take it off his prize, prize money, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, whether he wants to come back or not is another matter. The frightening thing is, though, I think, I mean, I don't know, you know, how much he's been playing over the years, but he could probably get to a, a reasonable level again because, as you say, he was a great player, and that was kind of the tragedy of the whole thing. In terms of how people would welcome him back, I think that depends on the people. I think there are players of his generation who actually quite still quite like him, um, and I think that there are other people, maybe younger players, who think actually, well, if we're if we've been so sort of vocal about. You know the Chinese players and what they've done. Why, why should he come back? So I think, as you'd imagine, opinions will be split. But I think because of the reasons I've laid out, it's probably not going to happen. We've got here Michael Waring. It says cross podcast alert. On a recent talking snooker podcast, Tom Ford was giving his views on the tier draw rather than the flat one to eight currently used for most ranking events. I prefer a tiered draw for the same reasons Tom gave, namely that it gives players a chance to play against their peers, get more points and prize money, and earn the right to challenge established players. However, to operate properly, I believe this would need to go hand-in-hand with a different way of awarding ranking points. The money system is no longer fit for purpose. My thought would be to simply award a point for each match match won, giving lower-ranked players the benefit of earning points before the established players come into the tournament. Some don't like the tiered system as it means lower ranked players have to play more matches, but if they earn more points by winning, I think that balances out the argument. 
A point per match one would also make each tournament more equal in terms of ranking, so the established players might well be more happy to play in the event to protect their position in the rankings. <coughs> Is my idea simply madness or food for thought? I don't think it's madness, Michael, at all. Um, <coughs> I think the ranking system will change. That's my prediction in the next couple of years. And I think it has to, because I think some of the so-called smaller events, let's talk about the home nations. The Welsh Open, OK, that's been a long-established event, third longest-running uh, ranking event after the World and UK Championships. And an event that the players have always supported, Ronnie O'Sullivan, you know, had won it four times, always played in it. Judd Trump, it was always kind of his local event, living in Bristol. They both pulled out of it this year um, because they kind of didn't need to play in it. The prize money and therefore the ranking points are at a much lower tariff. So skipping it and saving themselves for bigger tournaments, including the Riyadh Masters, which is not a ranking event, but is much bigger money. It's, I mean, the first prize is three times as much. Um, that made sense to them. And I think to stop that happening in the future, actually, they do need to look at changing the system. Um, so that all ranking events, there's still going to be a different sort of grades in terms of points, but th there's not such a wide disparity between these events that have big first prizes and the other events. I was talking to a player this week, and he, he kind of agrees with that, but he also said he's spoken to World Snooker, and they say, well, the way to get the prize money up is actually to have a prize money ranking list so that promoters around the world bid against each other to see who have the biggest tournaments. And that makes some sort of sense as well, but I think you can still do that by diff having different ranking points tariffs. Now, going back to the 1980s, it was a point per match one. Um, I think it started in the last 32. You got one ranking point, and it went up, and eventually, if you won the tournament, you got six points. <laughs> six points. Runner-up five, and so on. World Championship was ten to the winner. But that was basically, it was very sim simplistic in a way, but, you know, Steve Davis was number one. Nobody ever said it didn't work or it didn't reflect who were the best players. The problem with the system in those days, I guess, was that it was very rigid. It's, you had your ranking for the whole season. It didn't sort of change during the season. Now, whether we should go back to <coughs> a, a, a system as simplistic as that, I'm not so sure. And I'm not convinced it's right to allow players lower down the rankings to earn more points um, in an event than, <laughs> than people who come in later on. I, I can understand... As you say, it balances out the sort of the, the fairness, if you like, of having to start earlier. But I don't know. I think that's, I'm not convinced that's the answer. But if we had a return to some sort of tiered system, you know, you'd still it would it would balance itself out because okay, the top players might only have to win one match to get X amount of points. But if they don't win that match, they get nothing, and that's the point. Coming in the last 32 of the UK Championship, a player like Neil Robertson who lost that match to I think it was Zhou Yulong, he got nothing. Had he won that match, he would have got whatever he would have got. It was 15,000, whatever it was. Um, so, listen, I think we know what the arguments are here. I think it will change. Well, not next season, maybe not the season after that, but I think in due course it will change. And I think eventually we'll go back to a system that maybe was imperfect, but in terms of um, the arguments you're making there, and Tom Ford made, make more sense. You start off, certainly a new player starting off in their career, are playing players of their standard earlier on rather than coming in against the big boys. Um, and then there's more excitement if they make a venue. It means more if you make a venue when you've earned it. You know, I mean, Alan McManus would say, you know, he, he would never see Jimmy White, he would never see these guys until he qualified for a venue. You know, in the old days, Ronnie O'Sullivan at the Norbrek, 10 matches he had to win to get to a venue. But if he got to a venue, it was a big deal. But it's less of a big deal if everyone's at the venue.
Um, so I don't think your idea is madness, no. Now we should congratulate Ken Doherty, who won the 900 Seniors event at Goffs in County Kildare, venue very special to him. Sort of grew up there, as, a, as a, went to watch, was an usher, obviously played there and has won there uh, at the weekend. And he was on Channel 5 and Alex from Maidstone has written in. He said, I'm just writing as I'm watching a very enjoyable final of the 900 between Jimmy White and Ken Doherty. I want, really want to thank whoever came up with this concept. It's a fantastic watch seeing legends in a competitive but also very relaxed atmosphere. There's definitely a place for more of this kind of tournament. The standard was great with big breaks from Henry White, Doherty and Fergal O'Brien. I hope the 900 is scheduled for more events. It's a wonderful watch. <coughs> yeah, I mean, well, Jason Francis is the promoter. Um, obviously, it, it's slightly adapted from the shootout. You know, the whole point with the shot clock and hitting the cushion and that. But the 15-minute thing... I think that is a good um, idea. So many sports are against the clock. Time sports, obviously football, you know, you're, you're watching the clock. Rugby, you know, obviously there's a lot of sports where it's all about who's the fastest and so on. Snooker's never been that, but it can be. And we've seen the shootout has been successful and this is successful. Um, and I confess I didn't see much of it myself. I had other things on on Saturday, but from what I saw, it was packed at Goff's which obviously is, is an iconic venue, and for once that, that description actually fits, the old venue of the Irish Masters. So it obviously went down well, and I'm sure there will be more of them. And I think for the seniors it, it definitely works, because those guys obviously are not anywhere near their best now, we know that. So do you really want to watch them playing best of sevens, best of nines? Maybe not, but in, under this format, matches don't outstay their welcome, and actually they do seem to produce for whatever reason a high standard so um, glad you enjoyed it and I suspect more will more will follow there now our dear friend David Burney he's in Canada he says sorry for not writing in a, well, we know he's in Canada that's where he lives he says sorry for not writing in of late think, but things have been busy we're pleased to announce that the BC Open will be running from March 8 to 10 we have 52 players in this tournament great to see as when I ran my first BC Open in 2018 we had 22 players great to see the rise in numbers. Viewers will be able to tune in on YouTube. Please search for Snooker Canada's page on the video sharing site. As well, Lars, fellow correspondent, now this was Lars who came to the UK Championship uh, he's referring to, he says, if you're able to make it down to Richmond, it would be great to meet you, as you said two magical words to my ears, Snooker and Sweden. We'll be running the tournament at Top 147 Snooker and Billiards Lounge and Star Snooker Club. There we are, with some sort of, this podcast is now some sort of, uh, I, I don't want to say dating site, but it, it's, it's putting people in contact, put it that way. He says, uh, going back a few episodes, this is David again, he says, going back a few episodes, when some listeners were discussing commentary in your style, as myself, as a snooker commentator here in the Americas, I feel that everyone has their own style, like you said. We all like the players, there are some you like more than others. I feel if we can provide great entertainment to take fans away from tough times that are happening in the world these days... That is a job well done. I do think, just jumping in there, I do feel sometimes you put the qualifiers on and there's no voice. And I do think you miss, I mean, everyone has their favourite commentators and views on them and so on. I think you miss that. It is the sort of friend in the corner guiding you through. It's company for, for some people, I know, to have those those voices. Um, so it's, although it's sort of a ephemeral job in some ways, you know, it has its merits, it has its value. I, I would agree with that. Uh, and then you, you mentioned uh, you're coming to Sheffield, which I look forward to seeing you again there. He says, how about this for a joke? He says, of course the shot is pocket weight if the ball goes in the pocket. 
It's not so much a joke, that. It's a wry observation, I'd say. But thank you for it. And uh, do let us know who wins that event. I spoke to Cliff Thorburn recently. And uh, that sounds like something out of Alan Partridge, I know. But I spoke to Cliff Thorburn um, a couple of weeks ago. And, um, of course, the great sort of um, thing in his lifetime is the way that snooker in Canada, at the professional level, has tailed off. But he's in great form. And uh, had some great stories, as you'd imagine. Um... I think that's it for now. Um, <laughs> people will be saying, well, we thought that a half an hour ago. But anyway, uh, the Riyadh season World Masters of Snooker is uh, the big event this week. It's going to be fascinating, I think, to see how it goes, how it's received. Um, will anyone make that golden ball maximum? <sighs> it, I do feel that snooker has taken a step forward by going there. And I also feel, and I've been saying this for a while, it's not always a popular view, but I think actually invitation events are very important to sort of spread the snooker word, going to places with the best players in the world. And yeah, they're earning big money, but that, they've earned the right to be in that position. They've all come from the bottom and they ended up at the top. As, I, as I've said before, they're not the top players, they're the best players. Um, but testing the water in these territories and trying to build a base, we did it in Thailand, we did it in China. We've done it in various places where, in the end, ranking events weren't sustainable. But the fact is, there will be a ranking event in Saudi Arabia for big money in the summer. So this is quite a big step for the sport, and notwithstanding the op- the opposition that some people have to it, I think it's a significant week. So let's hope it all goes well. And a reminder, it's on Eurosport, it's also on DAZN, and there's various other places around the world, particularly in the region itself, where you can watch it. Uh, but that's it. So do keep your thoughts coming in. And as we're now in, here's the thing, okay? We're now in March, which means next month it's the World Championship. <laughs> next month it's the World Championship. It's crept up up on us. Uh, like, like, oh, I, I, won't, I was no, I was going to say it's crept up on us. The other day I was in the city centre of Birmingham. I don't need to delay this anecdote too much, but I saw the same person. The, the, these people, they, you know, they're doing noble work. They're essentially trying to get you to sign up for some charity. So they stop you in the street, they give you the spiel, and they're very earnest the way they do it. But I noticed the woman who did it three days earlier had been representing a completely different charity and had the same earnest um, views on that. Um, and uh, Anyway, uh, what was I saying? Oh, yes, the World Championship is upon us. And um, why don't you get in contact and let me know who you think is going to win? Who's going to win? Simple as that, because... After that World Grand Prix final, and I've written a piece for the Eurosport website this week on this, basically anyone you spoke to said it's between Ronnie O'Sullivan and Judd Trump. It's a straight fight this year between those two. Then suddenly we get to Telford. Ronnie got hammered, let's be honest, by Mark Selby, 6-0. Judd Trump bowed out. He'd taken a couple of tournaments off, looked a bit rusty, lost to Ali Carter in the quarterfinals as well. Suddenly it's not between those two, is it? Because you've got Mark Allen who's come through. You've got Gary Wilson, Jang Ander who are winning tournaments. You've got Mark Selby back in a bit of form. Actually, Ali Carter's playing good stuff. And then, you know, John Higgins has been threatening something. And obviously, Luca Brussel, we don't know how he's going to go. There's a lot of contenders. I know people have mentioned sort of Mark Williams. You know, I always think Ding Jun Wee's got unfinished business at the Crucible. Who's going to win it? Who do you think's going to win it? Just give me one name. You don't have to go into a great explanation. Don't have to give any explanation if you don't want. I'll collate them, and we'll see... Who's right, ultimately, because in two months' time, it'll be over, pretty much. <laughs> but anyway, looking forward to that. And uh, it's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com to get in touch. Snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Uh, 
we're members of the Sports Social Network, etc., etc. Uh, but that's it. So thanks for listening. Enjoy this week's snooker action. And as we always say, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. <laughs>